This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 183. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. The initial speakers and sponsors are now live. We just announced the initial speakers and sponsors list for our next virtual conference, the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event, which will be held on August 17th through 19th, 2021. Amazing list of speakers. I'm so excited to have you all hear them. We got Guy Spear. We have today's guest on the pod, Mark Jones, Perth Toll, uh, Caitlin Cook, Julia Karen. I mean, the list goes on. We're so excited. And so when you go on the website, go and see that initial list right now. Our website is conference.snn.network. Registration is open, so go click and register. Uh, click on the button to register once you're there. I will actually be announcing the initial presenting companies next week. So register, get all the updates as they come live. And that website for our conference is conference.snn.network. The SNN Network Summer Virtual Event coming up August 17th through 19th, 2021. I'll see you all there. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, as as I just said, our, one of our keynote speakers for our upcoming event, uh, Mark Jones, uh, he's today's guest on the podcast. He is the fund manager at Pragmatic Capital Management. And I recently came across Mark's interview with Some Zero, and somehow I missed his fantastic interview on Toby's Acquires podcast that he did back in March 2019. I listened to both and thought that this person needs to be on more shows to share his insights. And, and I thought we'd start here. I mean, he was talking about GameStop and AMC before it was in vogue, uh, a true contrarian to the core. And I'm so excited to share our conversation today. And uh, as I said, he'll be a keynote at our upcoming SNN Network Summer Virtual Event 2021. Go register conference.snn.network so that you can hear what he has to say there. So thank you again for tuning into episode 183 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Mark Jones. Everybody to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And I'm really excited to introduce to you our guest today. I, we have been, we were connected on LinkedIn a while ago. And I, like, I, you know, you know, sometimes you connect with people on LinkedIn. And you're like, all right, I don't know how that we yeah. found each other, but we did. And then yeah, I yeah. right? Like, and then I, I saw that he, Mark is part of the, 
some zero. I think you're still right. part of it. Right. I saw a right. post there and then I did some research and I don't know how I missed this, but you did an epic interview with T Tobias Carlisle on his podcast back in March, 2019. And so had to invite him on. You guessed it. My guest today is uh, Mark Jones. He's the fund manager at Pragmatic Capital Management. Mark, thank you for joining me today, man. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's so great to be here. You know, I've been, you know, following you for a while now, you know, just watching what you've been doing. Um, and, and, and I knew that eventually, you know, our paths would, you know, intersect. But I'm a huge believer in um, organic connections. Right. And I think that, you know, the timing was just right. You know, the stars aligned. Um, yeah, I just did a, a great podcast with Sum Zero and, uh, and, and I also did a great podcast with, uh, you know, uh, Tobias um, a couple of years ago that still, you know, is uh, living and breathing, you know, if you will, with some of the names that are in there. And I'm really happy about that. Oh, yeah. But I'm really happy to be here, you know, to, you know, just have a great conversation with you, um, share ideas about how we think about things. And I think there's going to be a lot of overlap. Um, and, and I'm really just looking forward to having a conversation that has a lot of um, uh, novel kind of concepts, ways of thinking about the market, but that makes sense uh, because that's all I've been thinking about for, you know, almost, almost seven, eight years now um, of just thinking about the market differently in one shape or form. If it's the hedge fund I have now, the first fund, research business, B-School, it's just my mind is always on thinking differently about the market. So I'm really excited about this conversation. Awesome. Look, no pressure, okay, to have novel ideas. Look, because they ain't going to come from me. It's, it, this is all going to be from you. So no no pressure, all right? But, you, you know, you listen to this, so, so you know, like, I, I always love, especially with the first conversation, you know, I, I love to know your background. You know, where, where did your passion for investing begin? Yeah, so, you know, for me, I would really say that it, it actually started as a passion for business. Um, and, and it ultimately, uh, you know, kind of evolved into a passion for investing, um, you know, as early as I can remember, like literally my earliest memories, you know, in life were questions about business. What is business? What are these buildings with people in there with, you know, the same type of clothes on selling things? What is money? You know, these are just like questions that I intrinsically had. Um, I, I literally mean my earliest memories. Um, and, you know, over time, you know, I just got to a point to where the people around me couldn't really answer those questions. And I just went on this quest, if you will. Um, and I ended up uh, studying accounting, um, undergrad and grad. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh. So I went to the University of Pittsburgh, um, CPA, all of that. We're recovering CPA now. Um, and I ultimately knew I wanted to get over into investing because that seemed like a great place for people who love business, because you can actually utilize this knowledge that you're naturally going to acquire about businesses. Um, and, uh, and, and that was really like the uh, foundation. Then I ultimately went to Carnegie Mellon and that took it to another level of where I found that I really got the tools to really, you know, deconstruct a business, you know, combined with my natural way of thinking. And it's just, you know, really evolved from there where now my passion is just markets and, and, and how the market itself is a business and, you know, buyers and sellers supply demand. Um, it's just this never ending um, quest to learn more about business and, and investing. And so, you know, it's so what I'll say is it's been there my entire life, but it's just taken different um, you know, shapes as time has gone on up to today with, you know, pragmatic capital management. Can you pinpoint like that first experience or like business, you know, like, well, like, because you, you mentioned that you, you said it wasn't so much around you. So it's almost like, I mean, 
as you hear on when you did your interview with Toby and we're going to get into today, you know, you're, you're contrarian, like you are right. the contrarian, you know? Right. So was it because like you didn't see business around you? They're like, Oh, I'm going to do business. And like, that was the first thoughts of like, Oh, maybe this is how I kind of think. And I'm going to apply that eventually as I, as I learn and grow. Yeah. You know, interestingly, I'll say that, um, while there were not people around me who could answer my questions, I found that business was all around me. It just didn't talk to me. It was just, you could kind of see the evidence of it. Um, and I think that I actually have grown to you know, believe that business is the monetization of life. Um, and so, you know, I, and I think that's where my passion for business came from is that this, this like commerce, this commercial activity, there's so much uh, meaning involved there, um, you know, across the gamut. So I would say that I, I, my earliest memory, honestly, was just something as just like a kid, something as simple as a um, convenience store, um, you know, just a store that's in this shack of a building, you know, and, and, and you go in there and there's just all these products and prices and labels on everything. And, you know, I always remember, you know, seeing that, you know, you know, chips were 25 cents a bag. And I just remember asking every adult that I was with, why are they 25 cents? And, you know, you know, you just, you get these looks like, like, you know, it's 25 cents, right? It's, right. It's the price. That's and what it costs. Like, oh, 25 God. cents. Yeah. Right, right, right. And I'm like, well, why not 24? Why not 23? Why not 26? Right. And, you know, this is a decision, I guess. Now, now I'm older. I know what I was trying to do. I looked at this as the, these are decisions that the store owner made, um, you know, to put a price on everything in here. There's, there's nothing in here that doesn't have a price. And there are very few things that have the same exact price. And I was just curious about how those decisions came about. And um, and so that's my earliest memory of this, this, this thing of business or even another one. You know, this is this, this is a good one. I always remember going downtown with my mom and, you know, I'm young, very young. And I just remember being downtown Pittsburgh and seeing like these big buildings, you know, uh, to me, I'm a kid. Right. And I see all these adults and they all have these clothes on these suits and they're all so, you know, just going somewhere and they're going into these buildings. And I just always wondered what's in those buildings. I learned eventually, um, but uh, what, what is this that is summoned all these people from their beds this morning to, to descend upon downtown um, at the age of four five, six, these are kind of the questions that I had. So those are my earliest memories. And honestly, it's been, it's been a love affair ever since it's, it's gone on twists and turns and different things like that, but that's the beginning. And I never wanted to do anything else. You said a couple of things that are really profound, to be honest, that I'd never heard before. And you put it so eloquently, like the idea of like business was all around me, but it didn't talk to me. And this idea of business is the monetization of life. Like what a, it's, I'm probably going to name this pod that or something, something <laughs> to that effect. Like that was, that was really good. I mean, that's such an interesting thought, you know, um, that business is all around you, but it doesn't talk to you. I don't know. I want to just, I want to kind of like deconstruct that a little bit because that's, it's really interesting to me, you know, like, cause it really is. I feel that same thing. And it, and it's not like, and, and like, you can have people talk to you about business, but I know what you're saying in that, like, it's, it's an, it's an everything, you know, in, in the cards that are on my desk and this post, this, that, the other thing, but it's not, but it doesn't, but it's not physically talking to you. I don't know. Right. It's just a, right. it's a fascinating concept. 
Yeah, you know, I am. Um, so I'm kind of like a part time philosopher. Right. So I also <laughs> think about the world in this kind of principled way as well. And I think that I, I think that we're actually all philosophers and that we all have, uh, you know, ways of viewing things. Um, but, you know, some are more aware that they have a philosophy than others. Um, and I think the more aware you are that you're trying to, um, and I don't want to get too too esoteric here. But no, go, it's fine, go. Okay, okay. You're trying to perceive reality as close to uh, perfect accuracy as possible. You know, I believe that most things in this universe are not obvious, you know, it's not necessarily physical, you know, and an example is kind of like a relationship, you know, let's say if someone were to, you know, see you out and you're with your spouse, you know, that person can likely tell you won't have a, a relationship, but that relationship is not physical. The relationship that people are capturing is something that's invisible, you know, but, but you can experience it. Right. Um, so I think that kind of like capturing the essence of you know phenomena if you will um that's you know how i you know go through life and it just happened naturally i would just make observations or you know feel things and with business you know it's, it's just business is a distinctly human act you don't observe any other species uh um, engaging in business um you know, you may possibly see a dog possibly drop a bone next to another dog and the other dog gives that dog something. But I doubt that ever happens with any type of regularity. Um, it may be, you know, a trick that's taught. But this act of like, you know, exchanging something of value um, is, is, is a distinctly human act. And, and I'm fascinated by it. And yes, it's all around us. Everything. If you live in a um, developed society. Um, where, you know, you're not, you know, completely self-sufficient. Business is everywhere. I'm in a co-working space. Um, everything that I have, I purchased, right? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see anything around me that I made myself. And the things that I do make, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, investment ideas, you know, I, that's commercialized. And I monetize that through, you know, the uh, through the business, through pragmatic capital. So it's all around us. And it's just it's just fascinating to see in our lifetimes, you know, the 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 proliferation of like the Internet and just see businesses come into existence and become, you know, hundred billion dollar market cap companies um, it's doing something that didn't even exist in 1995 or 2000. And you can just see how these businesses have actually changed life, how people live life. So it can kind of be like circular. Um, business affects life, life affects business. Um, and so that's why I believe that business is the monetization of life, because in order to participate in a lot of life, there is a price tag associated with that, kind of like an amusement park. Even if you're off the grid, it's like it's not like when, you know, even even if you're going to choose or, or that's where you are in yeah. life, like you have to transact if your goal is to survive, you know, I mean, right. You, right. Like you need right. you're, you're going to have to if you're going to be on another place, even without especially if there's going to be other humans. But if there's going to be no yeah. humans like you, you have to make it some sort of transaction in order to keep going. Right. Like, right. I mean, right. Right. And I would say to even get off the grid, you're going to have to pay for that. 
You're gonna have yeah. to take a plane. You're gonna have like to even be right. Like, I wanna, I wanna, you know, to get off the grid, you have to fly somewhere that's remote. Well, you have to pay for that ticket, right? Yeah. The clothes that you're gonna go, everything you pack in that bag to go off the grid. You know, it's like you can't. It's it's really difficult to, um, to 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 take business away from life as we know it. Maybe in some remote areas in like the Amazon, you know, there's not business in a sense where it's like monetized, um, but there's definitely going to be a barter system, right? Um, you're going to, you're going to exchange things. That's like, yeah. So, and, and it's, and, and, and we do these things in order to, um, to, to realize some desires that we have. We don't just exchange things for, um, for nothing, even if it's just for fun, you, you desire fun. You know, there's always some desire on the other end of it. Um, so yeah, yeah. I'm just fascinated with it. And it actually shapes how I see the market, um, how I see, you know, businesses, this isn't just kind of like, you know, some philosophical view. It helps me so much when I need to conceptually understand, well, what is, um, Pinterest or Trade Desk or Peloton, in essence, outside of the market, what is this business, which is essentially a bunch of people that have come together to, you know, provide some uh, good or service um, to people who have a demand um, for that good or service? Yeah, dude, we, okay, there's so many rabbit holes we can go down. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take us back for a second and then we'll, yeah. we'll get, we'll go back to some of those rabbit holes. But you know, to catch us up, you know, okay, so graduate from Carnegie Mellon. So when, when did you, what led you then to your founding of Pragmatic Capital? You know, did you have, did you do something in between or did you go right to doing, to starting your own shop? Yeah, it was kind of, you know, I guess I was kind of like an entrepreneur by force, if you will. Um, so I finished business school in 2016. Um, and, uh, you know, in 2015, you know, I went into business school because I wanted to join a hedge fund afterwards uh, because I found that that's the type of investing that, that um, I believed had the greatest uh, distillation of just core personality attributes that I have, uh, core, you know, um, just the passions I have for business. You know, I'm, I'm interested in VC. I'm interested in PE. Um, but, you know, this public equity market, you know, that, that to me was the holy grail for me. Um, so went into the program to join a hedge fund. And while I was in the program, you know, I'm in school, but I'm also working on stock pitches at any given time. There's always a stock that I'm looking at because I was told that in order to, you know, join a hedge fund, you had to be able to pull your own weight. You had to come and have your own names and things like that. So I was basically preparing for this and, you know, I, I didn't realize that along the way I was starting to develop my own way of looking at things. Um, and, and that happened because I would ask a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions and I would ask, you know, the second years in my program and I also developed a network of uh, people who were in the hedge fund industry um, in New York and in um, San Fran um, to kind of like review my stock pitches on a monthly basis. And I was able to learn a lot from the questions they asked me. And I, and I also asked them a lot of questions. And I just wanted to know, um, hey, you know, these stock move, these uh, stocks move daily um, and, and they move, you know, a certain, you know, uh, magnitude over a year, two, three. Um, why is that? And um, I really didn't get any good answers. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. It's like just a simple, hey, mechanically. 
why is this happening? Um, because I wanted to learn about it, right? I wanted to learn. I wanted to just be a student. You know, I didn't want to be the best stock picker at that point. Eventually, I had grand views on, you know, what I wanted to be in the industry. But that was many, many years in the future, a decade in the future. Um, but I started to kind of doubt the um, the um, the intellectual honesty of the industry. Interesting. Okay. What work was actually being done? What's really going on here? Because I had questions, and and there were just I got a lot of responses from people across you know the gamut, and they they, they just didn't add up. And I can tell when someone's being a little too qualitative with me. Where the, you know there's not as much you know you know substance to it, and ultimately what it boils down to is well that's the way we do it because that's the way it's been done. That's it. So I'm this type of investor, and this is what we do. We have our operating manual, and that's just what we do. Um, or I'm this type of investor. We have our operating manual. And this is what we do. Um, it's pretty homogenous. There is no room for unique thought, um, and that's you know if that's the case, you know I can't be in that type of environment. I wouldn't do well there, and so I said, OK, I'm at Carnegie Mellon. I'm learning about data analysis and things like that. I'm learning about regressions. Why don't I just you know, try to see if I can you know, do a big quant analysis to see of these stocks that do really, really well and these ones that do really, really poorly, um, is there some type of pattern I can identify? And you know, if you've heard the podcast before, you know about this research study that I did. So I'll, I'll, I'll just summarize. Um, what I found was there was a pattern. And with that, with that pattern, it's not that every, you know, every stock in the top five percentile or the bottom five percentile exhibited this pattern, but there was a, they took up the largest proportion of winners and losers. And what this pattern was, was basically ultimately a contrarian approach where, you know, if a stock was down 60, 70% and, and, and they went into an earnings call and they beat it and the outlook looked good, there was a really high probability that that stock would do much better than the market over the following year and vice versa on the short side. Once I discovered this, it changed my life. It changed the course of my life. It, it, it just, I, I liken it to someone who's a computer scientist and they, and, and, and they kind of stumble across an algorithm that actually works. Right. And then, so you just devote yourself to just fine tuning it, fine tuning it. And you just can't walk away. So at that point, you know, a year later, and I had the fortunate opportunity to meet David Tepper, had a great conversation with him. Um, I actually pitched a short on GameStop uh, when I had interviewed for an internship with the sperm. And it was just a phenomenal experience where everyone else from my program said it was the most difficult interview they ever had when they interviewed at Belusa, but it was the most engaging set of conversations that I had. And that kind of showed me, I think, differently. And um, so in between, you know, engaging um, with Tepper and getting some good feedback about my approach, looking at the data and just seeing that, hey, if you can pick good contrarian stocks, you'll do really well. And looking at the network that I had developed of people who were in the industry, hedge funds, mutual funds, and kind of seeing that, you know what, there's a lot of dogma that's driving this space. And that would be my competition if I were to strike out on my own. I had the confidence to go ahead and, you know, give it a shot. So after I finished business school, I launched kind of a beta fund 
um, using, you know, the network that I developed in the Pittsburgh region. Um, and, you know, so that was pragmatic, you know, 1.0, if you will. And that was in 2016. Um, and uh, so, you know, just really quickly, I also started a research business where I started to sell the research to some of these hedge funds that I connected with, um, you know, long form research, contrary names. And now ultimately, at a certain point, I decided to put the hedge fund in hibernation mode and focus on the research business to get more to get my name out there more to get the process more formalized. And then I launched Pragmatic Capital 2.0, if you will, the one I'm managing now in 2019. And, you know, the, the rest has been history. We've returned over um, or just under 150 percent as of yesterday um, since inception, um, May of 2019. That's through a global pandemic. And that's with the perfectly hedged strategy, which is expensive. So yeah, and being contrarian. Yeah. Well, firstly, congratulations on those numbers. That's Thank amazing. You. I mean, especially through this time, like, listen, it takes, <laughs> a, it takes a lot of gumption to be a contrarian, right? I mean, we've talked about it ad nauseum on this show. You brought it up on Toby's show. So, I mean, now, now we're going to get into some more nitty gritty, you know, you know, that investing philosophy, you know, yeah. as you said, you describe yourself as a contrarian, you know, what, what, what does contrarian investing mean to you and how do you apply that to your investing philosophy? Yeah. So I believe that the, the only way to generate outsized returns is to be contrarian. I believe that there are several ways to be contrarian. You can be contrarian in that you believe this company is going to change life as we know it or some or an industry as we know it. And that's a longer term contrarian view where the market may be, you know, positive on that stock, on that company but not as positive as you, you know, you're, you're a true believer. Um, and you think this is going to 10 X over five years. I, I would say that that's contrarian, but, um, I'm not like that. I'm more contrarian in the sense of right now, you know, there's a stock that's down 60, 70%. And if everything checks out, I'm going to go long or a stock is up two, three, four, 500%. And again, if everything checks out, I'm going to go short. So the market kind of has this momentum in, in, in one direction, either it's going really well or really horribly. And those are the situations that I don't even come across stocks that aren't in that scenario because my screen doesn't even capture stocks that, you know, are um, doing well. And there's no indicator that, you know, this may be a short um, and definitely stocks that are doing well. Um, you know, I'm not going to go long. Um, so, you know, I, I'm always starting at that point. I'm allowing the market to tell me what its expectations of the future are. Um, and so I, I use the price. I, I, I infer expectations from price movement. Um, so, yeah. All right. So, OK, perfect. All right. Because I, I it's obviously it was going to be way more nuanced. Like, yeah, I buy I buy stocks that are down 67 percent from their all time highs yeah. and I short stocks that are, you know, at their 52 week highs. Right. Like it, it's yeah. obviously much more nuanced. So what are, so what are those checks? You mentioned those. So what so what are those yeah. checks that you look for when you see a stock that's down 67% or when you see a stock trading is 52 weeks? What are those things that you look for where you're like, okay, now it's time to initiate a position both either long or short? Yeah. So the other side of that is I am a huge proponent of quantified research. I'm a huge proponent of forecasting. And based on the quant analysis that I did, you know, six years ago at this point, earnings calls are major catalysts. 
So, you know, which I, I don't find that many investors actually forecast um, earnings, uh, you know, as far as the next quarter and the following year, this like these five year forecasts, that's a different type of forecast. You know, we're talking about actual forecasts that if I know that if if I'm not more accurate than Wall Street, I'm going to take a nail and I don't want to take a nail. So I'm really putting my feet to the fire here. Um, so with that, in order to do that, that means that one, you know, this company has to actually have a positive economic outlook. So that's something where if the stock is down 60, 70 percent, it has to be a situation where the stock and the company have kind of dislocated, if you will. Um, and I think that to a certain degree, there is always a dislocation. Um, I believe that the stock is the monetization of the company. But that that process of monetizing the company, you know, I have a whole theory on 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 how I believe the market actually behaves. I believe it's based on something that I call desire to participate more than some intrinsic value that, you know, people talk about. Um, so and I can speak more about my views on intrinsic value. Um, but. What I want to make sure is, is, is this a great company that's just getting a hard time in the market? So ultimately, what I find is that, so I have a four-step process. And ultimately, at the end of it, the ones that make it through that four-step process, plenty are killed. And it's not because the market was necessarily right. It's just that I don't see evidence that the market is going to uh, be forced to correct its point of view. What I find is that the companies that I invest in almost always are in growing industries. So, you know, you have this tide that is going well for the companies that are in that industry. Um, I really don't want to be in a company that's in in an in industry that's like stagnant or in this kind of decay. And this company has to kind of fight against these like this like um, momentum that's going the opposite of its direction, swimming upstream. I, I'm not interested in that. That's that's more difficult than a company that's in a great industry where there's a lot of economic activity and things are going well. All that company has to do is develop a strategy to capture more of that demand than their peers, you know, to take share. So there's going to be a strong industry, a strong core business. You know, the business has to be, you know, their strategy. I believe that business is a game of strategy. And I believe that that strategy breaks down into what's usually known as the four P's of marketing, price, promotion, product placement. And I believe that every business has their own unique approach to those four. And the combination of those four that you go to market with are going to determine how well you do in your marketplace. So once I do that um, analysis of this business has a strong uh, strategy. Um, that is showing that it's effective through the revenues over time, through margins over time. So strong industry, strong core business. And also these businesses that, you know, we invest in typically have an additional line of business, a new product, a new market. That's just going to be, you know, kind of like icing on the cake that really, you know, kind of cements this trifecta of, uh, of uh, pillars for the thesis point. Those are the situations that I'm in. And, and, and lastly, when I forecast financials, it has to, this, this company, my estimates have to show that, that Wall Street's estimates are off because you can have a, a great company and a great industry for whatever reason, the stock is down. It could be because the industry, you know, people, you know, the market doesn't have a design. It's risk off for tech right now, right? It could be, you know, it could be a number of factors. It could be the company had an earnings call where, um, 
their 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 guidance for the next quarter quarter was lower than the market expected. But the company provided great evidence that this is this is just a, a, a sales cycle thing. This isn't this isn't long term. You know, some like temporary blip, or if you will. Um, you know, so you can have those situations, but if Wall Street's estimates, which kind of like a hurdle and the company is like a hurdle jumper, if Wall Street's estimates are too bullish, that the catalyst won't come and then you'll be holding a stock that you believe in, but there's no catalyst, you know, so, so, so that's how I approach, um, you know, the, um, identifying and what the stocks that we ultimately invest in, this is what they typically look like. Um, well, what the companies typically look like, and that bodes really well for how the market is going to price the stock, you know, in the very near future. Very good. All right. So, I, I mean, I'd love to hear an example of, of, of you know, an experience where it, you really felt like, okay, this is the thesis that I'm going to, that, or I'm going to implement my philosophy. Here we go. We're going to deploy. You know, do you have an example both on on the side where you're like, sick, I was right. And then, on, and then on the other side, we're like, okay, that was, that was a good learning lesson. It may be something like what you talked about where like, you know, it met all your criteria, but it didn't have a catalyst. Right. Yeah. 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 Do, do you have any examples um, like that? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say on the, on the long side, you know, a good example that I would like to use is um, Funko. Um, I um, found Funko in, in, in August of 2020. And, and I went kind of into the market looking for opportunities that were in this small to mid-cap space um, because that, um, that area of the market just was not participating in the recovery that I had already predicted, you know, in, in, in the March lows. But there was this huge part of the uh, stock market that was not participating, regardless of the industry you were in. So, you know, everything else equal. If the market, if you see that, you know, that over 80% of small and mid-cap stocks, you know, in August of 2020 are still in the red, and that percentage is much, much, much smaller for large and mega-cap stocks, even if they're in the same industry, that shows me that the market is just not interested in the Russell 2000, if you will. Um, so with that, you know, I, I, was, I was going into the market looking for these epicenter stocks, if you will, and I wanted to find... Um, you know, a company that was doing really well before COVID. They were impacted by COVID because they had to shut stores, whatever it may be. But, you know, I had a fundamental view that this is going to pass. We're going to come out of this stronger than we were on the other on, on, on the front end. And this and, and the, the strong businesses will survive. And if there was some economic substance to why this business was doing well before COVID, that probably didn't go away. So that, you know, I was kind of lo I was looking for that. And what I found was, you know, I, I found Funko at about 550 a share, started the year at about 17 a share or something like that. And um, so just, you know, you know, quick step back, Funko makes those little pop figurines. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, little modern bobbleheads, if you will. Um, and uh, what I had found was that, so right before the market crash, Funko had an earnings call that um that they had actually pre-released and if you pre-release and it's not good your stock is gonna it, the market hates surprises right or hates bad surprises loves good surprises right so so with that it wasn't a good surprise in that they had lowered their guidance for the next quarter um which 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 would have been q4 um and so the stock had lost you know 20 30 percent in a day 
um, you know, because of this. And the stock was doing well, well, you know, right before that point. So you had that 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 hiccup, if you will. And I can, you know, explain, you know, what happened there later. But you you had that. And then when the market crash happened, you know, it, it just it just tanked. And then it just was just flat for several months. So I said, this looks interesting. Um, I don't know what happened as far as why this company, you know, um, had such a relatively poor showing in Q4. It was they, they still grew revenues in Q4, but it wasn't at the rate that the market was expecting based on what Wall Street was expecting. Um, so with that, I said, okay, well, let's look and see, you know, what happened in that instance in Q4? Is it temporary? Is it more long-term? And also, you know, where was this business at before that? And how was the business handling COVID right now? And what I had found was that, you know, Funco is a phenomenal company. And what they actually do is they monetize pop culture. Their little, you know, pop figurines are really like, um, um, it's kind of like capturing nostalgia, if you will. If there's like a favorite show you had when you were a kid, there's probably a Funko Pop for it. And you may think that doesn't matter, but if you see that in the store and, you know, you know, you see that character of you, you know, if you loved Home Alone growing up and you saw Kevin in the scene where he says, this is it, don't get scared. Like, you know, you, 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 you might like that. And what you find is that people who were customers of Funko, they weren't kids. The average age was about 35. And about 51, 52% of the customers were women. So the market kind of, you know, a lot of the narrative was that this is a toy company, maybe a fed like Beanie Babies or whatever. Um, but what I had found was that Q4 was a slip up and that they relied too much on a, a product that really wasn't their, their uh, bread and butter, which was frozen to more of a kid's type of movie. Um, and, 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 and they didn't make as much of the type of uh, product that usually does really well. So they had that slip up in that quarter. But this was a great management team that was really invested in the business. They cared personally about winning and they knew the business intimately. This was, you know, a one time slip up. The company had never missed earnings estimates up to that point. They made a mistake. And so with that, I really believe that based on how they handled COVID, as far as, um, you know, they continue to innovate, they continue to put products out there, how things were doing through their e-commerce channels was it, it was going really well. But their international business, because the COVID shutdowns were much more difficult abroad than they were in the um, in uh, in the States. So, you know, a lot of the reopening that started to happen in July, August, September in the States didn't really happen internationally. So they still had a lot of these like COVID headwinds. But this business was in great position going out of COVID to be even stronger than they were before because they also significantly reduced their cost structure to where for every, you know, um, you know, for, for, for every 1% growth in revenue they would have, they could potentially have an extra three to 4% growth in profitability because of their operating leverage. These are the things that the market just seems to not care about at all. But I knew fundamentally that it was because this whole space was just overlooked. You know, and, and the catalyst would be as these as this company continued to report earnings that actually beat estimates, you would start to see this kind of regression back to the mean of where they were at. And then as the market realized, wait, this company is coming out stronger on the other side than they were before because they have a really, really, really strong cult following um, and the business you know, corrected the ship, if you will, as far as that that issue they had and the product P um, for, uh, you know, the four piece of marketing that I talked about. And sure enough, you know, that's what's happened. They're at about 20, 22. They, yeah. they fluctuate between 20 and 25 right now. Um, so, nice. Yeah. And you, so you got it in like around five, you said? 550-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. yeah. 550-ish. So, yeah, I mean, it's gone really well. Um, and 2021 Are you, gonna be are a you still, share, still a shareholder, by the way? Are you still a shareholder in Funko? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. 
yeah. Oh, yeah. Got still, still, still a shareholder. Um, yeah, I, I definitely believe that that this there's just so much trajectory for this company um, based on just the core product they have, new products that they're bringing online that were actually doing really well during COVID that went from being you know five seven percent of the business to now fifteen percent of the business. Um, so so that's something you want to see, and also going direct to consumer. Um, whereas before they were kind of like a manufacturer where they sold through retailers, you know, they just just thousands of retailers they sold through. Um, but Funko has a really strong following. If you go to their Twitter or their Instagram, they've got millions of followers. You know, at Comic Con, their their stands have more people than most other you know uh, um, uh, brands, if you will. They've got a, a cult following. Some of their products go in the secondary. market market for 10, 15, $20,000. And you could buy them originally for $10, you know? So there's just so much wow. intrinsic demand for what they do because they monetize pop culture and, uh, and, 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 and they monetize nostalgia. Um, so that's just a great example of identifying a stock that was, you know, really, really, really hurt materially. Um, however, the underlying economics were very strong, and there was clear evidence of that. But they made one mistake, and then you had the the uh, pandemic that came. So they tripped in Q4, and then a tidal wave came in the market. So you know, hence this opportunity was created. Um, so yeah, that's a great example. Thank you for sharing that one. I mean, yeah, like I I, I did I I funny enough I hadn't heard of the company, and then I as soon as you go on their website, you're like, oh, I know these figurines, like you see the <laughs> yeah. you know, but, yeah. But, but I got to ask you, I mean, you know, as a contrarian, I mean, during that March 2020, you know, what was that experience like for you? I mean, were you a kid in the candy store? You were like, all right, I got to stay disciplined, you know, disciplined. But, you know, what, what was that like? Yeah, um, after I had accepted that this is happening. <laughs> Because yeah, we had, to, we had to go through that first, right? Yeah. Right, 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 right. We're about to be in a pandemic. Money, or, or, okay, right. yeah. Like, right, it's like, wait, a pandemic? Like, really? <laughs> yeah. What is that actually? A real, like, Spanish flu, right? You know, it, yeah. it, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was definitely an interesting time, you know, when it first started to happen. And, um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm watching the market daily. And uh, and I just see it's just going down materially. I mean, just just horrible selling, right? Just like no support. Um, and the market is an auction. You know, those prices that 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 are realized, those are the prices that are settled in an auction. You know, there's supply and demand, and price is the equilibrium of supply and demand. So, you know, and what drives that supply and demand? You know, there are several factors. It's not just the intrinsic value. Um, and especially when you look at how rapidly things happen, I don't think people even have enough time to do calculations on whatever it may be. Um, and then when trends form, a trend kind of is evidence that people are following each other. You know, if something is going well and it keeps going well, you got to ask yourself, maybe the person who bought today bought because this thing is going so well up to today. Right. So all of that, you know, that's all in my mind as I see this selling and selling and selling and selling before we even knew COVID was here, right? And it's like, wow, you know, you just look at that. I was hedged, I'm always hedged. So I could kind of wait it out and just, you know, because my hedges, you know, they kind of like, they explode in value like a um, like an airbag, right? So, you know, if the stock, you know, it, it has the shock, you know, that airbag is gonna deploy, 
right? And it's going to go from being a really small portion of the portfolio to a big portion. Um, so I'm really thankful for those hedges. So I did have the peace of mind from that. But even still, it was a difficult quarter. And I was sitting back, not to mention, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You know, you have you have investors, clients that, you know, are concerned. And, you know, so I'm pretty sure a lot of managers dealt with a lot of redemptions during that time because a lot of clients just were not interested in just like there were a lot of investors in the market who weren't interested in staying in the market and they were going to cash. There were a lot of clients and investors and hedge funds that were not interested in staying in the market and they were pulling cash from you. Right. So you have to manage, you know, that part as well. It's kind of like, you know, a football game where where, you know, you've got a lot of activity happening in the stands and you just have to say, you know what? I can't focus on that, even though that matters. Um, I have to keep my head in the game and just look at it based on the substance of it. And ultimately, once it got to a certain point, let's say like early March, um, let's say March 10th ish. That's when I said, you know what? It's time to start looking for opportunity. All the quotes came to me, you know, the uh, Buffett quotes, the David Tepper quotes, you know, I when there's blood in the street, all these quotes that everyone loves to cite. Right. I, you know, I heard this voice say, hey, this is your time. This is it. If you really are, you know, what you are, you know, trying to become, this is it, you know. And, and also, I had a fundamental view that the U.S. was going to come out of this stronger than ever. The world was going to come out of this stronger than ever. Uh, this wasn't going to be like the Spanish flu. We have the Internet. People have two lives. They have their physical life and they have their digital life. The economy wasn't going to come to a you know screeching halt because there was so much of the economy that was done digitally. Also, you know, I, I firmly believe that the government even though government isn't known to, you know, work quickly or together, when there's a time of crisis, you'd be surprised how quickly both parties come together and they get things done. So I firmly believe that, there would, that they, would, they would not bicker while they were closing down, you know, businesses as far as physical businesses and putting the economy, the, um, the economy into somewhat of a medically induced coma. They would have to kind of like still keep currency circulating in the system, if you will. And they can do that. They print the money, right? So I had that view that they wouldn't just let that happen, that the Fed also would, you know, take interest rates to zero, do whatever they needed to do. This is this is triage mode. The people who make the money and make the decisions are in triage mode to save the economy. I took confidence in that. Similar to David Tepper did in 2008, when people were thinking that the banks were going to be nationalized and things like that. And David Tepper said, no, I, you know, I looked at you know, the uh, mandates of the Fed, I know the interest that they have, I'm going to bet that they're going to behave in their best interest. And 2009, he had a phenomenal year. So I kind of took all that to consideration, in addition to just studying COVID trends in, in Asia, because it was their first and things like that. Um, and uh, also just thinking that there would likely be economic uh, beneficiaries of the shutdown orders and things like that. And I can get into that, into what I found. But once I just accepted that this was happening and I looked at what the market had just done as far as how much it went down, at that point, anything short of long-term damage, the market was gonna start to regress back to where it's at because the market has this like, this like this like inverse of gravity force. It wants to go up unless something shocks it for it to go down. But as soon as that happens, it's gonna settle People are going to absorb. They're going to stop being afraid. They're going to stop selling. And as soon as the selling stops, that's when you have more support. And then you have people who are going to be a little more optimistic, right? Because, hey, things are cheap now. And so that was my view. Um, and, and, and that worked out really well. Wow. I mean, what was like, 
what was the main trend that you were, that you're like, okay, I'm going to latch on to this when it, when, when it was all going down, you know, that you're like, okay, this is the one thing that I, this is the one industry or sector that you're looking at. Like, all right, this makes the most sense. Once the, once the shock of everything settles and you start to see the supports again, like, I think this will come back whether it's faster or more sustainable. I'm not sure exactly what maybe you thought, but like, what was, what was the main thing that you saw? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I definitely thought the market would have a V-shaped recovery. Um, I, I definitely thought that the economy would, would start to rapidly come back. Um, and, and it did, I mean, it started to like, kind of like that, that marginal growth has started to, you know, come down a bit, but that wasn't the important thing at that point. At that point, it, you know, people were talking about the Spanish flu and this is going to be Armageddon, right? So you just have to be better than that. Um, but what I, so I thought about the economy outside of the stock market. I, I do kind of these like thought experiments and I think about kind of like, so currency, you know, it flows through an economy, it flows through a country. Um, so I just kind of thought, okay, well, there are some places that the flow kind of like a piping system is going to be much slower, like restaurants um, or movie theaters, right? Movie theaters is a great one, right? It's going to be much slower. I'll be asking you about that very soon. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And I was in AMC at this time, so that, that didn't help. Um, <laughs> I was at that helps. Um, but um, so there's no, there's not much money that's going to be flowing to, to, to that, that, that faucet, if you will. I thought about it conceptually. However, it's not that the, that the faucet has dried up. It has not dried up. Actually, there's more. Right? You can go to the you know, FRED database and you can see that consumers have more money during this pandemic than they had even before the pandemic, right? And, and, and you can see that, you know, expenditures were up. Uh, so I said, you know what? Okay, well, where's this money gonna go? Because you know, there's one thing that consumers really don't like doing and that's saving their money. Even though the savings rate significantly went up, it was still, as far as when you look at the that additional money that they got, they weren't just putting that in the bank, they were using it. And so I thought, okay, well, people are stuck in the house, you know, what are they going to be doing? Well, one, e-commerce is going to go through the roof. It has to be, right? I mean, it's, it's no-brainer, right? Um, and also, the first thing that I thought of were they, they were just internet companies because I thought, okay, well, these businesses exist digitally. This COVID pandemic is primarily a physical issue. It's hurting the real economy, the physical economy, but this digital economy, businesses that benefit from uh, like web traffic is Pinterest, um, what, what would be store traffic to GNC, right? So you've got web traffic that I believe would pick up because when people are at home, they're probably going to do more of what they already do. Um, and I was starting to see early data that internet usage was going through the roof during COVID, um, which, of course, we can expect that. And we're talking as early as March, you know, early March, you could see things just spiking um, and uh, people were working from home. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like if you were spending two, three hours on this platform and you work eight hours a day and you travel for how many hours a day, you're probably going to be spending a little bit more on there uh, because it's just it's just there. So I thought, OK, who what companies what industries are going to be the main beneficiaries of people being at home more and being on the internet more? And that's when I found, you know, Pinterest and Trade Desk. And these basically are companies that benefit from increased web traffic because they essentially monetize web traffic. Um, and, and, and that worked out really well. Both of those, and I'm still in both of them, I've gotten over a 3x return on them. Actually, I believe in Pinterest. I think I'm, I'm at over 4x now. Um, so, yeah, it's gone really well because these businesses are still innovating. They're still, you know, businesses are much more resilient 
than I think the market was taking into consideration. These businesses don't want to die. So they get really alert and they have a gentleman following, if you will. And they are eager to to some are just trying to survive, which is great, depending on what business you are. Um, some are actually seeing, hey, there's a lot of demand for what we do now. Let's let's turn it up and let's and, let, and let's capitalize on this. Um, so while the stock market may have gone crazy, the actual real economy of businesses, there were some businesses that stepped up to the plate and they turned their strategy up. And um, and, and I, I tried to at least find a couple of them to, you know, put into the uh, portfolio. Very good. All right. Well, you know, you mentioned one stock that I have to ask about because, hey, you were talking about being long in this name, you know, before it was in fashion. All right. You know, back, <laughs> back on, on Toby's show in March 2019, you were talking about how you were long AMC. So, I mean, one, are you still in? The, I mean, did you did you go through this whole ride or, you know, and, and if yes, you know, what what was that like for you mentally? Yeah. Yeah. So, um. I did not go through this whole ride at the um, so I closed stocks that were stocks that represented companies that it, it would just take them longer to recover from what was happening where they didn't have a portion of their business was e-commerce. Right. So they can still live from that. Just stocks because I just thought, OK, well, I'm all about earnings calls. Right. That's my catalyst. It's like, geez, I mean this business is going to be lucky to like stay alive if, you know, they're going to have to get, you know, have, you know, take out debt, other things like that. And, you know, so I think that COVID was just really an unfortunate event that happened for a, um, for, for an AMC, if you will, or companies like that, um, that, you know, or, you know, six flags, right. It's just, what can you do? Like, that's like an act of God, as they say in the 10 K, right. It's like, what, what can you do? So I closed that and I, and I replaced that with a Pinterest, with a trade desk, because these are ones that where I can actually get a major return from this now. And I just put an AMC on the watch list um, because I'm all about the marginal return. There's no reason for me to kind of, you know, ride this. And I know it's going to be a rough road right now. Why don't I get out, find something else that I think is active now. And then in time, I'll keep an eye. And, and if it makes sense, I can, you know, express that contrary view through an AMC. Um, so I, I, I was hedged when this all happened. So it didn't, you know, hurt as much when it, you know, took that decline. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, the, you know, Reddit movement, meme stocks and all of that, um, that's, um, you know, I laugh at it, you know, it's uh, because my view of the market is that the market is an auction. The price is whatever the market says it is. And people can talk about intrinsic value and things like that. But I, I generally don't think that's what actually drives price movement. And I think that what drives price movement is just the equilibrium of supply and demand. So basically, if a bunch of people want this stock, for whatever reason, for the Reddit traders, it may be because it's kind of being hyped up or whatever it may be. But for the traditional investors, it could be because, hey, this sector is working right now. That sector is not working right now. We're going to sell some of that. We're going to buy some of that. That's why. And that's going to make the stock go up. It's not because of some intrinsic view. So, you know, to me, that just shows the mechanics of the market. So and I did benefit from it because I have several stocks that um, that have high short interest. Uh, with, you know, the big short squeeze, the macro short squeeze that happened across the market in January. Um uh, I'm in iRobot, um, and, and that has a lot of uh, short interest. And at one point in, in, in the morning when, these, when this was all first starting with GameStop and things like that, I know you want to ask about that, I'm sure. Um, my position at iRobot had went up about 
50% intraday. I knew this is just the auction and that wasn't going to, or I had a, a, it was, a, it was highly unlikely, I think in terms of probabilities, right? And if some, you know, so, so it's just highly unlikely going to sustain. I use options to uh, hedge the uh, portfolio. I also use options to lock in gains. Um, so that way I can continue to stay in the in the name after it's up 100 percent, 200 percent. But I'm securing a material portion of, of of those gains. So what I did was I locked in those gains. So when a 50 percent in real time, I locked in 40 percentage points of those gains if I would give up 10 percentage points. And so, you know, and it happened again. So I kind of take that 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 uh, that dynamic approach. Um, but yeah, but I wasn't AMC through the ride. I'm happy for them. Uh, I'm happy for you know the CEO. It's his, he got a lifeline. Um, they, you know, they got a lifeline. You know, so they did right by you know offering more shares so they can, you know, um, you know, hopefully you know change the business around. It's not that the business needs to be changed. To be honest, they they just need to be able to weather the storm. But now I think they have a wild card where now they've got you know so much capital that they can. Um, they can significantly change. Um, they can add a whole new line of business on now that they think is, is uh, kind of related to what they do. But that's um, I'm not a, if something happened that was extremely unlikely, um, to be honest, I don't want to give myself credit for that because I want to give myself credit for, you know, um, the uh, making the best decision with the information that was available. Yeah, I mean, look, there was no there. Even the the best prognosticator, even if you thought you're like, all right, it's going, you know, with AMC in particular, you know, yeah. like okay, things are just taking a huge hit. It's pandemic, no, obviously, no one's going to a movie for who knows how long. Yeah, and we, you know, even if you even if you projected like it was going to open up when it has, like in the last couple months here, yeah, for it to go where it did was just there was no way. There was no way, you know. Yeah. So I mean, like, I'll give you an interesting stat that I saw. Yeah. That I just I, I love this time because again, it just showed that desire to participate. It's just an, an extreme example that that's what drives price movement um, on any given day of the week. Um, so what I saw was that there was um there were over on one particular day where where the stock had went up like 80. It was like you know some huge number. Um, the daily volume that day was it was it was over a billion shares. I think it was like one point two eight billion shares changed hands that day. The total shares that were in free float was like two hundred million or something like that. Three hundred million. Yep. So if you just do the math, look at the revolution of that same share was bought and sold multiple times that day. But and but every time it has a revolution, the price is going up. Right? It's like you and I could theoretically, if I had, if I had this cup, say I'm going to sell it to you for ten dollars. Said okay, and I, and I say I'll buy back from you for fifteen, and then we just keep playing this game. I'm not saying it was intentional, but structurally, that's what happened. You have this 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 like same people kind of is going around and around and around. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, obviously not sustainable because and it may take some time for for um, because that means that desire to participate has to remain at this level and actually increase for the stock to keep going up. And I, I don't see that happening. Um, but that's not my game. I'm not I'm not I'm not in it. Uh, it's not a, that's not a holding. It's fun to watch. 
Um, but it's, 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 it's a great display of market structure. And as much as some people may want regulators to do something about it, there's nothing that can be done about it in the sense of people, the price is what the market wants to pay, what the, um, what the next investor wants to pay for. And if there's enough, you know, the price is the weighted average of demand. So any stock that I'm in, I'm contrarian, at least at first. And it's not that I'm the only person that has that view. I'm not. There are other shareholders. It's just that we're in the minority. The weighted average of, you know, you know, views for this stock is more on the negative side. Right. So there's always going to be both sides, but it's skewed. Um, so I think that the price is always going to reflect whatever that skew is on the seesaw. You know, and there's nothing that anyone can do to stop that. Absolutely. So, so Mark, this is my favorite question I've been asking in the last couple of interviews, because especially a contrarian investor like you, you know, what's your best overreaction right now to everything that you're saying? Like, like it's a thought experiment. Like, you know, just you see, you have your core observations of what's happening right now, you know, and, and this isn't to say that this will happen. Like it's actually what you think will happen. But like, if, if you had to overreact to what's happening right now in the markets, what what would that be? So just to clarify, this would be something that I believe is going to happen. And I think it's such a big deal that I would overreact to it. Is that, is that what you mean? Uh, what am I excited about in the sense? Or, or, are you, or are you saying, what do I think the market's overreacting about? Mm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good counter question. I, as uh, being the open-ended question that I am, I would just say you pick, but well, I want to say, look you, at this, uh, like, uh, like, yeah. like, like, look at this. Do you not see this type of moment? Yeah. Okay. I would say, um, the operating leverage that the retailers who survived COVID are going to have is going to blow people's minds. And what I mean is that prop profitability earnings per share for many of these retailers is not just going to increase 20%, 30% this year. It's going to multiply. It's going to multiply because they learned that they can operate with much, much less overhead. COVID taught these companies that they could be much more lean than they thought. So these companies that had, they had to reduce their, their uh, staff by 25%, right? 30% as much as they could, but they stayed in business and, 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 and they kept going. So what you find is that a lot of them are not bringing employees back at the same rate that they were because they found that, hey, who's to say that the number we had was the right number anyway? Also, employees have been working a lot harder, doing a lot more work. Um, over, you know, COVID time. So I think that maybe a lot of the average employee mindset was, you know what, a lot of people were furloughed or let go. Like, I'm happy to still have this job. And, and also this team approach of we're in this together. I think that businesses became much more productive. So with that, you're going to have, and this is a situation Funko's in or Children's Place, which is a company that I'm in that had just one of the best earnings calls I ever seen earlier this year um, with the operating leverage is that, Again, if you have a company that gets, you know, for every 1% of revenue growth, they're able to get two, three, four, five percent of EPS growth. That's going to completely change models that Wall Street has. And if these companies just keep a PE 
that is the same as where it's at now with that uh, earnings growth, it's going to be ridiculous. I think that's going to be the big story when this year ends and, and we're in January of 2022, that's going to be the big story of, wow, when these retailers came out of COVID and they're, they get that first full year, it was just the performance. People are going to be blown away by the earnings per share growth of so many of, of, of these retailers um, because they're so much more lean. Now they're so much more, they're just so much more lean. And the, But the demand hasn't changed. You still have that top line demand for what you do, but you're doing it in such uh, uh, at such a greater level of efficiency that as, as an investor, if you think about, you know, earnings, like that's, that's the Holy grail, right? If we EBITDA or, 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 or EPS, it's, it's going to multiply. I think that that's something that the market loves. And like any name that I was ever in that multiplied, you know, I was in, I was in RH years ago and, and that, you know, I got a, you know, three X or something like that on, on the, or, or Weight Watchers years ago. I'm in Weight Watchers again uh, because I found another opportunity shortly after the podcast I did with Toby where I, yep. we were talking about Weight Watchers and he brought it up and said, well, I'll have to look at it again. I did look at it again and I did get it. So I'll, I'll buy and sell the same name because I really get into scenarios, right? Is this, you know, what, what how has the scenario changed um, or is this a great contrary in scenario? So what I found with Weight Watchers, RH, the stocks that I had that multiplied, yes, revenues grew more than what she was expecting. But when earnings, when there's that 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 operating leverage, it's kind of a slingshot for earnings. The market goes gangbusters over that. And I think that's going to happen in this um, retail space. So the Russell 2000 is going to do really well, I believe, you know, through this year. So I think that's the thing that people still aren't appreciating. Um, but I don't think the average market participant is really into financial modeling and, and actually mod and actually quantifying the research, qu quantifying the economic substance. Hey, this is happening. A lot of people were let go and people are still finding jobs in other places, but companies are much more efficient and much more productive and lean. What does that mean? I don't think that it's gotten to that. Hey, you know, I, you know, the, the light bulb goes off, lightning bolt goes off. Earnings growth is going to be ridiculous for these companies. So, yeah. And that's why I'm in Funko still and, and, and Children's Place still. And I'm up, you know, several hundred percent on them because there's still so much more, you know, um, gains to be had from there. That's a that's a super interesting take. I'm definitely going to be looking into that because you would have thought that's already been priced in. But maybe I guess maybe it hasn't been on a few of these names. Huh? No, I don't think so. I think that what's what's happened is I think it's like two stage and the same for the um, for the for the first batch. So the portfolio was split into two batches. You've got the tech. Um, beneficiaries, if you will, stay-at-home beneficiaries, and then you have these um, retail reopening uh, plays. So the tech ones, they had their first, um, you know, spike because the market saw, hey, if you want a company that's actually doing well during lockdowns, this is the one you want to get, and this is the industry you want to be in. And while people have a view that, oh, that's kind of played out and fizzled out, the second leg of that is, no, the economy has structurally changed. What happened was a massive acceleration of the digitization of the economy. There are companies that are going to be uh, long-term beneficiaries of that. So their their trajectory has changed materially. So that's like two prong, and that's why I'm still in Pinterest and I'm still in Trade Desk. Um, but the retail, those stocks were beat up so bad. The first bet, if you will, was just a regression back to where they were at least at before around that level. Because long-term, even medium-term. 
these businesses were not, as long as they made it through, they weren't structurally damaged. They're going to be fine. This was, this is just like the market came back because, you know, COVID happened, but it was handled, it was absorbed and, and you keep going. So there would be a regression kind of back to where it was at before. But the second leg of the retail plays, if you will, is that, again, these companies are now structurally different coming out of COVID. And that's where I think the next leg of growth for these stocks is going to come in that you see that, no, this isn't just, hey, you know, this stock price regresses back to where it was at, you know, before COVID time. This is, hey, no, this is a structurally different company post-COVID and pre-COVID. And that's where I see kind of this like orchestra playing out. Um, so both have multiple legs. COVID had multiple you know, legs, if you will. There's the near, there's the immediate 2020 impact. And then for everyone, there's going to be a 2021 and beyond impact, you know? So, and and this is how I see it kind of manifesting into these companies. Very good. All right. So we're, we're, we're running the bend here on our interview today. And I mean, th this has been, I've been having a great time. Like this, this some of the insights you're giving here are just are, are unique and, and I, I'm, I'm really enjoying this, but to close this out, what, what would you say is an investing experience that, impacted you the most in your career? Jeez. Come on, man. You're a young man. There's not that many. Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm just messing with you. Yeah, I know. It's, 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 like, dude, it's like, dude, like, what we just lived through was yeah. like dog years, right? Yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah. we just, economically, right? Like, Jeez, it, it's really, and also being contrarian, you're, you're playing a different game, you know, it's like, 100%. right. Like, and I'm contrarian, like I'm really contrarian, like every stock and I have a concentrated portfolio. So it's, it's intense. It's really intense. Um, and you have to be right. And if you're not right, you, you will lose um, and it'll be a problem. And so I have career risk, right? If I'm not right, I'm losing money. No investors. It's over. Like that's a pretty big deal, right? Um, so I think that it makes you very, you know, very, very, you know, careful. So, but I, I'm gonna go forth confidently, right? Because you have to, you live once, this is what I love, let's go. And there have been so many experiences and I wanna make sure I give the best ones. I, I, I could say March of 2020, right? That that was an interesting time. Um. Man, that's a good question. You, you, usually I know what I want to answer before the person even, you know, finishes. Um, what was the most impactful experience you? Mm -hmm. you yes. Had? Jeez. Um, I'll say, I'll say the market crash. Yeah. I'll say that because that, that, um, that really took the um, the approach from micro to macro. I had to have a macro lens. Um, I knew eventually I would get there, but I, I just find that I'm put in these situations where you kind of have to get there now, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you go about it? Well, you know, you reason your way through and you think about the substance of it. But I think it was the most impactful because it's one thing to go contrarian on individual stocks. And, you know, you have the data for these individual stocks, but when you're going like this macro contrarian and, and, and like the market 
is just hemorrhaging cap uh, um, um, uh, capitalization, right? Um, I've got this sign in my office. It's it's from uh, the market crash in 1929. And it's, you know, the Wall Street Journal. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, the words really matter, the order. Market, um, you know, uh, investors panic as market crashes, right? Um, whereas I have that up in my office because I don't see it that way. I actually, and I learned this, I actually see it as, I actually see it as, um, market crashes because investors panic like investors make the market like you the market isn't separate from the from from the investors you all set the price the market sets the price in the market right so that just teaches me basically that it's the people that are kind of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy so i would say that this like it, it just showed me that what i was doing on a micro level based on substance and logic let's just say this the 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 opponents that I met at the track meets on a micro level, I found that they're the same people that I met on a macro level. I actually think it's a little easier. Um, I'm gonna stay micro because I you know I love micro. I love you know individual companies, but um, yeah yeah I would say that that's the most you know. That's the most significant experiences to just it took the confidence level in the um, in the it actually helped create what I call my investment philosophy. Up to yeah. that point, I had investment strategy, mm. but now I have an investment philosophy um, and it's based on this, uh, you know, um, concept that I call desire to participate. Um, and on my site, I actually have something that. You know, some people love it. Some people don't understand it, but I wanted to publish it. I have um, a diagram. I call it the pragmatic market pricing theory. And this is how I believe that question of, hey, these stocks are moving. Why? What's the reason? Um, it's a part of that. That is the visual depiction of how I believe the market actually works. Aside from a lot of the terminology that people use and, and kind of like going to the market with their preconceived notions and trying to force it upon the market, but you're not getting the intended results instead of looking at the market, accepting it for what it is. And so that came from the market crash and just and just studying it the same way that I studied individual stocks. So, you know, while I definitely would not want to relive COVID or anything like that, that experience changed my life. Uh, personally, as an investor, and it helped me see I have a full investment system. Um, so, yeah, that's it. I, I couldn't say anything else, honestly. I mean, how no, I mean, look, right? at the end of the day, like, look, you, you branded yourself as the contrarian investor in March 2019 on a podcast. Here you go. <laughs> this, like, are you? Put your money where your mouth is, dude. You know, and you did. Right. And you came up with a whole system around it. I, I commend you, you know, like. You, you're like, all right, this is what I, this is what I believe in. Here we go. Let's do it. And it worked out a lot. Yeah. yeah really, yeah. really a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 It worked out well. You know, I'm really thankful. And, and, and the data was there. That's the most important thing is that, yeah. you know, the data was there. Um, and, and I stayed true to the principles, to those contrary principles. Right. And then, uh, and just, and just found a way to adapt it. And that's how, you know, you know, something, or you have an understanding of something if you can um, solve problems that, you know, the professor never actually asked in class and wasn't on the study guide, but the structure of the problem is almost identical. 
you know, so, and yes, so, so that, that was a phenomenal um, experience and it helps to be hedged, you know, it definitely made, I paid considerable hedging costs um, to keep net exposure, you know, really low to create this asymmetric risk reward. So that, that was also a good, uh, a good time to be hedged, Um, you know, yeah, so. Very good. All right. Well, to close this out today, Mark, you know, for, for new investors, just any investors in general, you know, what, what advice do you have for them? Think unconventionally. Our tagline is unconventional thinking, unconventional results. And I really, 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 really believe that. Um, I believe that many investors would do so much better if they just thought about this as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a logical problem and came to their own conclusions about how to think about something um, instead of having an operating manual where it's like kind of step by step, right? Um, this kind of heuristic based approach. I would say just think unconventionally, think about the logic of what you're doing and um, and what is happening. And I think that'll make you trust your conclusions much more and fear the market less. I think a lot of investors fear the market because it's this woolly mammoth that can crush you. Um, but I think that'll give you the confidence to go to battle with this woolly mammoth and win because you know you you have you thought about it the right way and the market doesn't really think it's highly reactive. Um, and so yeah, I would just say think, take time to think and just don't take some operating manual. Um, and yeah, yeah, I'll say that. That's I will say one more thing, and I may no, get no, no, no. I may get in trouble for the value investing community, but I, I, I do have to kind of say this. Um, I, I, I strongly question, I would, I would tell them to strongly question the notion that anything denoted in monetary value has intrinsic value. Money itself does not have intrinsic value. It has ascribed value. We ascribe that value. That's where the price comes from. In, uh, I, I believe that only life itself has intrinsic value. So everything else has a price and it's driven by certain things. So I would just say, just think about what does that truly mean? What does, what does intrinsic value truly mean? Because if you're spending all of your time and energy trying to calculate intrinsic value of a stock, which is, which is, which, which is denominated in dollars of a company, which makes dollars and these dollars themselves don't have intrinsic value, um, you may be, you, you may be better served spending more time thinking about what is the market? What do people actually make decisions on? Because what are the chances that people kind of converge upon this, this shared intrinsic value number? I can create it. I can do a DCF and make one, but I don't, I don't, I'm not rewarded based on what I think the fair price is. I'm rewarded based on what the market thinks the fair price is in the future. And, uh, so that's, and I don't think it's about fair price. I just think it's price. Um, and I say that because I love business. I love business. And what I found is that the market is not, is not purely about business. And I know that because most, this is in the research business that I had, I found that, and even in, you know, the networking, I found a lot of people, a lot of market participants don't do real deep microeconomic research. So I think it's more about stocks and ticker symbols 
um, and kind of talking about the company, but not truly understanding the essence of that company like an insider would. Um, so I do think that there's a separation between the stock and the business and the, 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 the business affects the stock, but the stock has an auction effect that makes it take on a life of its own. So I know that's a lot, and this is what I tell my interns. Um, but you have to close out. You have to close out with that, man. Like, come on, I, I you know, we I, look. We I already covered so much good stuff. You're gonna start with me with that. I had all this <laughs> coffee. I'm like, I'm now I'm like 10, 10, 12 questions. Like, you, you're killing me right now, dude. I'm like, getting a lot of hate mail <laughs> about this intrinsic value statement, man. I'm getting a lot of hate mail, but you know, I believe, I believe that people should think about that. Um, and think, does that really make sense to even, you know, even think about? Um, because value itself is a subjective term. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it, it just is, right? So I think that, um, you know, people would be, you know, better guided if they just thought about what are the drivers of this? People can want a short Tesla all they want and say this and say that, or, you know, talk about the Fed and how they're spreading money. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is, this is, this is, this is how things work in this advanced economy. It's all about expectation. And as long as a company can continue to get people to believe that the future is bright, then people are going to behave a certain way. And, and you can stand on the outside and complain that this is wrong, but I would rather write letters to my investors explaining how well they're doing than writing letters to my investors explaining that the market is broken and and this is why you know we're not really doing well. Your purpose as an investor is to maximize returns. This isn't a religion. So yeah. Anyway, right. I hate to stop. I hate to stop there because you do, we're we're now going down so many rabbit holes on behavioral investing, intrinsic value. You know that. Like, what does value investing even really mean anymore? You know, and so I'm going to stop it there because you're, you're going to come back and we're going to talk through all of this yeah, stuff again. Yeah, yeah. So, so Mark, with, with that, where can my audience go and find more information about you? And, you know, let's, okay, this is going to come out in like about two weeks. So in the event that you were to create a Twitter account in two weeks, you know, I, I, I can't because <laughs> then somebody will steal it. But uh, yeah, right, where, right. Where, where, where can people go find more information about you right now? Yeah. So, so the main place, you know, to, you know, you know, follow, you know, pragmatic capital as far as, you know, what we're doing would just be the website, pragmaticap.com. Um, and, you know, we've got a distribution list on there that you can subscribe to follow our performance. Um, I have monthly letters and quarterly performance reports um, that are really informative, not just about performance, but more about why the performance was what it was. Um, that's the most important thing uh, because it's about having your investment system. Um, so yeah, you can just find me on there. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you're on some zero, I'm on some zero. And I'll seriously consider the Twitter. Um, I think that, you know, after this conversation is showing me, maybe I do have some uh, additional views, more even philosophical that I can talk about on Twitter to kind of get some conversations uh, started. <laughs> yeah. Not just that, but even feedback too, right? You know, uh, yeah. we, we yeah. all live in our little bubbles, but it's nice to be like, oh, maybe I, was, maybe I, maybe I should adjust how I think about it. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 but yeah. As long as everyone way. has the data, we can have great conversations. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's respectful. But yes. uh, <laughs> number yes. one. Yes. But uh, with that, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today, man. This was unbelievable. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm you're you're coming back. So well, I'm, till next time. Yes, till next time, man. Thank you so much.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.